Thank you very much for joining us here. I'm the, the executive director of the Vilna Shul Boston Center for Jewish Culture. Uh, Hannah was telling you that it's the oldest immigrant error. Uh, it's the last immigrant error synagogue left in the city. There were 20 just in the four-acre neighborhood that was the historic old West End and the North Slope of Beacon Hill. And there were over 50 synagogues similar to the Vilna Shoal from that time period in the city proper. And today, all of those are gone, either torn down, burned down, turned into churches, condos, office buildings. So we're very excited to breathe life back into the historic building, not for it to become a synagogue again, but think of it more like a cultural center, a community center, and a living museum. Today, uh, since October, we've been closed for some uh, large-scale historic renovations to make the building accessible and comfortable year-round and also excavate a thousand square feet of space that has never seen the light of day, never been used before in the building. We'll have accessible restrooms, uh, legitimate office space for staff, and some meeting space. This is possibly the best thing that's come out of our construction so far. When we're done, this will be a close second, but the opportunity to finally uh, program with the Anthenaeum and be here and attach our name to the Anthenaeum's name and have a program together is, um, I guess, no longer a secret dream because I just admitted it to everyone. So. Um, it's wonderful to have you here. Without further ado, I would like to intro introduce to you our two authors who are going to be in conversation, and then a Q&A, and then we'll get them uh, to sit back uh, in the back of the room for uh, book signing, and then we'll have a lovely reception. So again, thank you for joining us. Hannah, thank you again for having us. And I get to introduce to you uh, Randy and Jenna, who are chatting maybe fighting. Excuse me. Okay, you too. Stop fighting. Thank you, Barnett. Oh, sorry. It's the first thing I always do is bump into the guy who's being really nice. The second thing I always do is give my husband a comment. It's very traditional. It's interesting I'm passing with the phone. Here you go, lady. Thank you. You're welcome. The tradition of the microphone. <laughs> on a clutch. We're, we're pros at this. You can tell we've done this a lot and together a lot. Um, so we are each going to talk for a few minutes about our novels. And Do you want to go first? We were like sort of like drawing straws in the back room, like who gets to go first. We could if I had one, but I don't actually have any money. <laughs> so thank you all for being here tonight. I'll, I'll just I'll run with this since I'm the lab mouth who started talking first. So this is not our usual setting. Authors are privileged to speak in a lot of beautiful places, but this is the most beautiful and this is the most gorgeous green room that we have ever, ever been in. So um, thank you to the Athenaeum for hosting us and for you all coming out on this splendid evening when you could be frolicking in the common and instead you're here to hear writers talk about their books. This is miraculous to us. Um, and I also want to thank the Vilna Shul for importing us. I have a really special connection to the Shul because I used to live across the street at 17 Phillips Street. 
Um, and so I had the privilege of um, every day when I came home from teaching at Boston University and was taking my sort of palate cleansing nap before I started working on my novel in the evening. It was my first novel. It was called Those Who Save Us. Um, it was about a German woman who is an SS officer's mistress um, and was saving herself and her little daughter because she was actually in the resistance. So I'm writing this novel um, and you know, taking these naps for inspiration and looking across the street at the Star of David window of the Vilna Shul. And I feel like that was sort of the spirit image of the novel. So I, I love the shul and I'm so excited for the renovation and to see what sort of gorgeous and interesting things the interior um, turns out to be. So um, that's just a little background. I am now going to talk about my novel, The Lost Family, which is a three-day-old paperback. Um, it came out in hardcover last June, and I've pretty much been on tour with the Jewish Book Council ever since, and literally just stopped traveling in May, and now the paperback is out, um, which is very exciting. And to give you a thumbnail of what the book is about and why I wrote it, um, the Lost Family is about a German-Jewish concentration camp survivor named Peter Rashkin, who survives Theresienstadt and Auschwitz, emigrates to the States, um, and starts a new life in New York, only to find that he and his American wife and their daughter are haunted by the family that Peter lost during the war. And people always ask, where did you get the idea for this novel? So I'm going to tell you to forestall the question. I interviewed Holocaust survivors for four years for the Spielberg Survivors of the Shoah Foundation, and I did not use any survivors' stories directly in my novels, but Peter's story was very roughly inspired by one of the survivors I interviewed, who, like Peter in the novel, was a chef. Um, in his home country of Czechoslovakia, the actual survivor was a very famous chef. He was like the Anthony Bourdain of Prague. And then the Nazis came and they put him in the camps. He survived the camps, emigrated to the States, where the only job he could find was as a busboy, um, from which he was then fired because his tattoo from Auschwitz upset the American diners in the restaurant he was working in. And this gentleman's story made me start thinking about that next chapter of the survivor's life, which was the refugee chapter, and what it would be like to be a young man coming to a country in which you didn't know the language, having lost everybody and everything you loved, um, and having to start over again in a culture that had never been occupied. And what would it be like to try and bridge the gulf between yourself and these well-meaning, sort of prosperous Americans who had, had not been through the same experiences? So I was working on this novel. I was working on the character of Peter and his story. And I went to a reading in Florida. And after the reading in the signing line, um, when I had told people what I was working on, a lady came up to me and she had tears in her eyes and she said, I'm so glad you're writing about this man, but I implore you to think about his family. She said, my husband is a Holocaust survivor, um, and bless you, and bless you, and bless you. Um, and um, we revere him, my family reveres him, and we love him, and he's totally emotionally locked down, and we have all 
suffered our whole lives from not being able to access emotionally this man whom we love most. So please write about this man, but please also write about his family. And I felt as though the universe had given me a little God wink because I was already starting to do just that, to write about Peter's wife, June, and their daughter, Elsbeth. And so the novel became a book about not just one person's survival of and acclimatizing after trauma, but a whole family trying to put their arms around it and reacting each in his or her own way. So that's what The Lost Family is about. Obviously, it's a light beach read, and you should all pick it up right away. Um, with that, I'll turn it over to Randy. Let me see. Is this on? doesn't matter. I was a bartender for many years. <laughs> and, I, you know, after you do last call in Mission Hill, you can do just about anything. I'm going to stand because I'm so short. Um, and then I'll sit down when we're going to ask each other questions. Also, I'd like to be able to see you when I'm down there. You can hear me, right? Uh, hold you close to my mouth. You're so, yes. It is real, it's actually wonderful to be here, especially since we're supporting um, the Vilna Shul. I had a uh, unusual relationship with Judaism. I am Jewish, but I grew up in an unusual home, and the thing that saved me was the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies. I was sent to a camp starting when I was six. I was supposed to be seven. My mother lied about my age, so I guess she couldn't wait to get me out of that house. Um, and, you know, not because I was bad. She just wanted to have fun and go on dates. Uh, or maybe it was bad. I don't know. Um, but my first novel was actually the dedication was to the Federation because without them, I don't, without them and the, and the Boston and the Brooklyn Public Library, I don't know how I would have turned out. But previously, I've explored domestic violence, traumatic brain injury, even Ponzi schemes. But writing Wasted, that's the one that really got to me. And the reason I'm referring to my notes is it just came out two weeks ago, so I'm still getting acquainted with my talks. But Wasted tells the story of two women who torture themselves over the number on the scale and are brutalized by others, um, as so many women are. Actually, people always say to me, where did you do your research? Well, let's see, I lived a life. <laughs> I have a lot of friends. Um, what's it like when the scale is the scariest thing in your house? And why is that more true for women than for men? And I, I actually know that that's basically true because I've lived a life. <laughs> but also men, they tend to say, oh, I really should take a few pounds off for my health. And those few pounds could mean 50. But it's still like, I should probably lose five pounds. Yeah, and women could be like this and they're like, I should really lose some weight. It's like, because you want to disappear. Um, I wanted to write a novel based on what if a woman's desire to be thin overrode everything in her life? What would happen if it really went way, way too far? My characters are not my family or me, and yet they are. Um, Carolyn Parkhorst Ross, she wrote uh, The Tower of Babel. She has this thing that she wrote in one of her novels about novelists where when you write a novel, when you bake cookies, you put in butter and you stir it in. So then when you bite into the cookie, you're not biting into a big chunk of butter, but it's the butter that flavors the cookies. And that's what we are. And I am really the butter in these cookies. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, I, I, a lot of my butter went into this. Um, writing this book was very difficult for me. I didn't want to face all the things I knew I would have to face. I mean, I've been up and down the scale multitudes of pounds and times. And I knew that I would have to 
face the past. And that some of the things that came up for me um, was I lived in, we lived in an apartment in Brooklyn, a little tiny apartment. And so everything was, my mother hid the cookies on the tallest shelf inside a pot. So my sister and I, we learned how to be mountain climbers. I can climb anywhere now. And then I learned to hide cookies in the hamper. Um, so I'm a very good hider. And I learned how to eat in secret. And I think a lot of women, um, and you don't have to talk if you've had issues like this, just blink. Oh, so you've all had it. Um, in my book, Alice and Daphne, my main characters, seemingly are very different. Uh, culturally, they're very different, but they wrestle with the same issue. Daphne's plump in a family of model thin women. I grew up with very thin women and me. Um, and I was, because I was usually plump, it meant that I was like an elephant in the house, as I was reminded on a regular basis. Alice is breakup skinny when she meets her husband. These are my two main characters. Everybody, anybody know what breakup skinny is? Yeah. <laughs> I once said to my husband, and you all know what breakup skinny is when you get so heartbroken you don't eat for a while. So I wanted to lose some weight. And I turned to my husband who's here. I said, could we just get divorced for a few months? <laughs> and he's very sweet, but he wouldn't do that for me, for which I still resent quite a bit. Um, the two women meet at Wasted. It's located in a remote Vermont mansion at a program promising fast, dramatic weight loss. Alice and Daphne and five other women are desperate. And they go, and they think it's going to be this wonderful place. And the only thing they have to agree to is being filmed for a documentary 24-7. And it turns out the documentarians have another idea besides what they thought. And so they have to learn to first escape. Can they escape the place? And then can they escape their view of themselves? So this book is about not just um, women and their weight, but women being judged by the world. And when do, we, when do we finally let that go? And can we ever let that go? And it's not just about weight. It's about everything that we judge ourselves for. So we are going to ask each other questions, my dear. I'm excited about. So I just am sitting here nodding, and I feel like we should, you know, Oprah is going to pop out from behind one of these statues. And or a Cadillac something. for you, and a Cadillac uh, for you, <laughs> which would be awesome. That would be nice. I would take a Cadillac. But I am sitting here, and we had sort of like agreed upon questions. But as I'm listening to Randy, I'm sort of like flipping the order in my mind because. I also was blinking and I, I feel like she could have said like women, if you have a difficult relationship with food or the scale, breathe because I feel like so many of us do. And John, can you hear me? Okay. It's like, it's good. Um, yeah. So as Randy was describing, um, climbing up into the cl a cot, your mom had cookies in a cot. No, like a, a pot. Oh, a pot. Oh, okay, got it. I was, oh, and now we're going to do Roseanne Rosina down. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, uh, was Emily. Emily I was like picturing a cot in a closet. I thought, well, that is very <laughs> dedicated hiding. Um, but I, as a little girl, was overweight, and my mom would tell me, you know, stop eating and don't take 
double portions or, you know, don't have another helping because you'll get a double stomach. And I never knew exactly what that meant, but it was bad. And so I used to hoard food in my dollhouse's attic, which opened, um, and I could hide food all over the house. And I used to hide the chocolate coins that you get for Hanukkah in the dollhouse attic and also Triscuits. And then when everybody went to sleep at night, I would creep out and eat them. Um, and also Bakos. And to this day, I cannot eat the chocolate coins, the Triscuits, or the Bakos. So it makes sort of a cute anecdotal story, but I also think the roots of it are like not cute at all and not funny at all. And the way that people inherit the sort of shame that you, a lot of times our, our moms or our families give us runs so deep that earlier today, like I have a family member who's sick and a friend came over and brought me food. I hadn't eaten all day. Um, and I, I realized I didn't want to eat in front of my friend because I usually eat in privacy. Like I eat in secret, like I used to do when I was a little girl. Um, so I'm finding this, this conversational topic really interesting. And we were going to ask each other, like, what obsessed you about the book that you wrote? What, what was the obsession that drove you? Was the food obsession mostly what, like, or uh, I guess an image or weight obsession, what drove you or like, what was the genesis of the idea and then what kept you seat belted in? Well, the genesis, this is my fifth novel, but I've had the first line for this book with me through all the novels, which is everyone hates a fat woman, but none more than she hates herself. And I was terrified to write this novel because I have dealt with weight issues, you know, you know, up and down, 50 pounds here and there. Um, and I didn't know what I would uncover. And I know it's a very polarizing topic. And I have found since it's come out, uh, the reactions have been very interesting. Um, what's the actual genesis was not, it's not food so much. I, I certainly am obsessed with food, but I am more obsessed with with weight because, well, okay, I'll give you an anecdote that'll say it all. I was at my aunt's funeral, um, and I'm standing there by the casket. It was my favorite aunt. She had died very, it was a sad, I, I, I move around, but it was a sad death, and she had been on dialysis, and I'm sitting there, and my uncle Seymour comes over, who I hadn't seen in a long time, and I now hope I never see him again, and he said, so sad. I'm thinking, yes, it is very sad because she used to be so beautiful. Look how fat she got. Okay, this is the casket she, he's looking into. <laughs> and I'm like, and he turns to me and he goes, you better watch yourself. Okay, so that's one reason I probably wrote the book. Um, <laughs> just thinking, just an idea here that I might have had something to do with it. And when my mother, you know, she's passed on, but every time she would call, she would say the same thing to me, you know, especially after she moved to Florida and we, you know, saw each other a lot by phone calls, so to speak, and she'd say, so, how's your weight? As though my weight were like this thing that's separate from me, like this little puppy, come on, come on, wait. Um, and I would know it was coming each time and I didn't know what to say. So I think my, the, what drove me to write this book, and we both have so much food. I mean, I, I am obsessed with food, but not, but in as much as what is that food going to do to me? Food became evil. You know, it was like kosher, you want to talk kosher? Kosher means calories. Um, 
And I needed to get to a point where I could explore that and come out on the other end. And I have to tell you, it was a fantastic experience. As scared as I was of it, this is what I learned. I thought about my grandmother, my grandmother who lived to 100. At the age of 94 at her birthday, she's sitting there eating a piece of cake and she says, I shouldn't have this. I'm like, what are you, waiting for the size two? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, my grandmother was never a small woman. She was, you know, she was, and like, she, I'm still with the, you know, what was it with the grandmothers that would walk around with a pocketbook full of the, the saccharin tablets they would take from that thing? I mean, she could have had a restaurant of saccharin. But I learned, what I learned from this book and from my characters who I lived through is kind is magnificent um, and wisdom will save the world. And when I want to eat a piece of cake from now on, I will eat that cake and I will enjoy it and I'm never going to eat it from the hamper again. So that was the, I'm, you hear me, honey? No more hamper cake. <laughs> so food is a huge piece of your book. I mean, your book is, you know, deep and incredible and has, you know, all of this stuff about a topic that you've explored before the Holocaust. But food and issues with food with the wife and the daughter are all through it. So where do you think that, where did that come from for you? I just, I love food. I mean, people, people, I love food. I, we, we're, this is one of many reasons we're friends. We're both like, oh, the food. Um, I get asked this a lot when I'm speaking about the lost family, like why such a big role for food in the book. And my answer is sort of the same as Randy's. Like, I really love food. I've always loved food. I've always been um, what my grandmother, who was actually very kind, um, used to call a good eater. So like she was she's always a good like, eater. she was like, she's a good eater. I'm like there with my mouth open, like a baby bird, like waiting for scraps of anything to fall into it. Um, and my mom was like trying to catch them and my grandmother is slipping me scraps under the table. Um, but I basically am like a blonde Labrador. Like I think about food all the time. So when I'm going to bed, I think how many hours till I get to get up and have breakfast and what will it be? And when I'm having breakfast, I'm like, Oh good. I get to have lunch soon. And what will it be? Um, and dinners, you know, when I'm not out and about frolicking, I like to have in my house, it's very ritualistic. Like I love to read and eat and that's like my reward for going through whatever I've done that day. Um, and it's very loaded because like Randy's characters and like Randy was just talking about, like, I, I love the food so much and I've always been taught, like, what is it going to do to your body? Like if you, it's like one, what is the saying? Like one minute in the lips, four years on the hips. Like this is the kind of crap that, you know, I grew up hearing. So, um, my novel has food in every decade of it. It's a three decade novel, 65, 75 and 85. The first is Peter's section when we meet him as a restaurateur and chef. And this is a man who is obsessed with food as all chefs are. Um, and he's obsessed with it because he is good with it. He feels safe in a kitchen and whereas he feels safe nowhere else in the world and feeding people is the way he communicates with people. Um, it's also a wall he builds between himself and other people. And I think one thing that I learned when interviewing survivors and then talking to their children and their grandchildren was that there were many, many issues about food. Um, and children of survivors used to say to me, oh, my dad always it hides food in the 
hamper or like we found food like after my mother passed like her closet was like stuffed with you know girl scout cookies so the children would end up getting almost force fed um, or the parents would be like saying like don't eat that or there was just so much of a pronounced burgeoning food consciousness in the homes of so many Holocaust survivors that really affected their their children in various ways and then even grandchildren so for Peter this was a no-brainer Peter marries a model who thinks of food only as fuel when she manages to eat like a stick of celery like she's weighing again what that will do to her body and their daughter, of course, is like magnificently fertile ground for an eating disorder um, because she has a dad who recreates her in his own image and they cook together all the time, Elspeth and Peter. They call themselves the fabulous Rashkins. She has like a little chef jacket, a little chef hat, little chef clogs, um, and they, they cook together every weekend. And her mother is always saying, don't eat that, don't eat that, you'll get a double stomach. So notice how life gets recycled into books. Always be nice to writers. You never know <laughs> what of yours we might throw in there. Um, so um, the food plays a, a really large role in the book, not just because I love food and love to write about it, but because it says so much about the psychology of the people. Um, and the most fun for me with the novel was creating Peter's restaurant, Masha's, which is German Jewish comfort food. And because it's set in 1965, it's all brown and saturated in whiskey. And I created all the menu items for um, the restaurant, and they're all in the book, in an actual menu. Um, and then I also kitchen tested all of those recipes on my fiance and our black lab, um, which was all my fiance's fault because he saw me researching surrounded by chef memoirs, surrounded by cookbooks, um, like the Betty Crocker new picture cookbook from 1965. And he said, well, your novel has a restaurant in it. Wouldn't it be cool if it had a menu? And I thought, what a great procrastination device. So I spent the ensuing summer um, kitchen testing all of these recipes. And so one of the joys for me was pretending that I was a chef um, and then disseminating these recipes to readers. So the book really fed me in a kind of unexpected way. And I'm wondering, um, like I was thinking about you, like feeling free to eat the cake. Do you feel like you feel honestly more liberated from the sort of food consciousness like a food obsession in your life can you say like oh my god i don't i don't really need to worry about this anymore i can eat the cake like <laughs> f all of you voices up there i'm just gonna eat the f and cake it's good cake sorry ethanam i swore sort of in the afternoon here yeah I know. Oh i'm from gosh. jersey it happens mm -hmm. i'm from brooklyn thing. i'm holding back yeah you're right yeah. um that's people have asked me how this book affected me um, and if I like sort of cured myself of my food craziness, it's like the, what happened through, right? You know, I followed my characters through their journey of their scale obsession. And I, I also use things like, uh, gosh, if some of my family reads this book, um, there's a scene where Daphne's mother has a scale in the entryway to the kitchen when she's looking back to her childhood. So you couldn't walk into the kitchen without walking on the scale or around the scale. I know, right? Who would ever do that? My aunt. <laughs> when I went over my aunt's house, she made my mother look so normal um, because we did not have a scale in there. So as I was putting, going through some of this stuff from both points of view, because well, first off, and just 
I realized something very intense while I wrote this book. I realized that I am insane about it. I am really obsessively crazy about weight and the scale and food. It's like, oh, that's why you've been avoiding writing this book for 10 years. I get it now because you're going to uncover stuff. And that was very liberating for me because now I realize, oh, let's face how, what you are and now let's figure out what you're going to do to manage it day to day. And I did figure out what I'm going to do. And I did it through my character, one of my characters. And it's my own personal little um, way that I do it. In fact, I got, I was in an interview with Today Show blog. I mean, it's not the Today Show. It's like the Today Show seller. I was interviewed by the seller of the Today Show and, and uh, C-E-L-L. And she actually got me to say what I did, and I said, please don't print this. I don't want people to think that they should do this. Okay, what is it? It's okay. nothing that anybody should do. Um, Tiny nail. So, yes, I it really, it, it didn't heal me. It didn't make me less crazy. It gave me tools that I needed. And this is not a self-help book. This is a novel about women learning to love themselves as they are. That's really what it's about. Um, and And... Loving themselves as they are is different for each character. And that's what I, what I learned. But there was another obsession, and I want to talk about other obsessions that we have. Like, one of my other obsessions in the book that came out, like, I think every writer has an obsession they, they visit over and over again. Um, one of mine is loneliness, and one of mine is anime. The feeling of belonging nowhere but being able to fit in everywhere. Like I can turn it on and fit in everywhere, but I, I grew up in a way that I felt like I, because I was, an, we were an outlier family in, in, in our neighborhood. Um, by outlier, I mean strange. Um, <laughs> and the other thing I realized that I'm obsessed with is cultural mixing. Because when I was a kid, because my mom wasn't around and the library raised me, I went through like spates of reading, like I read everything there was to read on the Holocaust, you know, and I was like probably seven, then everything there was to read on, on slavery and everything there was to read on everything. And I had this idea when I was a little kid that I should go around and just knock on everybody's door. And if I just said, by the way, we should all just get along, um, that the world will be solved. And so in this book, I really, I have women from every culture. My, my main characters, one is Jewish and from Chestnut Hill, one is mixed race and grew up in Mission Hill, which is actually where I raised my kids. And then when they, when they get to the Vermont, it's a United Nations of women of every size. Because I didn't want this to, this is, I wanted to be about friendship and cross-cultural and how we can really reach out and save each other. Um, so, Besides food, what was the underlying? I mean, I know it's a Holocaust and you write about it, but what other um, obsessions do you think you visit? I was like, there's obsession other than food? <laughs> you tell me this now? Um, I think people keep asking me if there's one theme to my novels, what would it be? And I have a recurrent theme in all of my books, two of which are sort of war or war and consequence books, and one of which is about um, twins, one of whom is mentally unstable. Um, that's more contemporary. And the common ribbon that ties them all together is trauma and people um, having big cataclysms that they can't control invading their lives and then how they survive these cataclysms and then how the trauma that they've been through 
um, makes them act in the aftermath when they are trying to reconnect with other people and they are trying to rebuild, but they're sort of doing so in a sideways way because they're not really able to acknowledge the damage that has been done to them. And when Lost Family first came out, I remember doing a radio interview, and, uh, and I should have been prepared for this question, but the interviewer said, um, you know, why do you keep writing about trauma? Like, what is it about your own background? And I usually give a fairly um, loquacious interview, but there was some dead air for that because I was like, I, I don't know. Um, because I know people who have real trauma backgrounds. I don't have a real trauma background. Um, my parents were not survivors. My grandparents weren't survivors. Nobody beat me. You know, my mom was like a little weight obsessed, but she's also like a pianist. So she wasn't like a total witch. And my dad was a broadcast journalist. And I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, which is like very flossy. But I've always been attracted to these darker stories. And I can attribute that to two things, one of which shows up nowhere in my books. And that is, I have a lot of alcoholism in my family that nobody ever talks about. My mom, right before she passed, started talking about it and was like, oh, did you know your great uncle died from alcoholism? Um, no. <laughs> it took you like 47 years for me to tell me that. Um, and so I thought it was interesting how you can have trauma and sort of misbehavior in a family and the family behavior braids around it and seals it off from the rest of the world, but still everybody's acting funny. So I think that's partly why I was drawn to write about like trauma culture in families and how they deal with it. And the other thing is I, I learned a lot about this while writing The Lost Family, the epigenetics of trauma. So um, children of survivors or children of trauma survivors in general inherit in, uh, in their DNA and in their cortisol levels, some understanding of what their parents and even their grandparents have gone through. And I started thinking of this as a sort of key as to why I, with no survivors in my family, was interested in the Holocaust. I'm half Jewish, my dad was Jewish, my mom was Lutheran, she called herself a recovering Lutheran, um, and my dad called himself a bagel Jew. Neither of them was religious, and they both were like sort of scornful um, agnostics. Um, but I was fascinated since childhood with being half Jewish. I've never felt entirely safe in my own country because of this. And like the Nazis are surely going to come back at some point and get me. And lo and behold, um, and um, <laughs> sorry, a little political wink there. But um, so. Um, when I was a kid, I identified so strongly with being half Jewish and with this sort of fear that I wasn't really quite safe, that I had an Anne Frank attic in my house in Montclair, New Jersey, in which I also hid Triscuits and chocolate coins and um, other food and water and books and flashlights, you know, and I would plan out what I was going to do when the Nazis came. And that seems to be the chord that I strike over and over in my work is, you know, what, what do you do when some big cataclysm comes and takes over your life? And then how do you muscle through that? And how do you retain hope and love in spite of those, those big disasters? So those are the obsessions. Um, I had, I have so many, I have many more questions for Randy. I missed you. I haven't seen Randy for a while. I'm like, oh, I have so much to say. Um, we were also going to talk a little bit before we opened it up about how you write your, your book, um, as a, as somebody who has strong passions and obsessions, like I, I know that I have a very particular way of writing novels. Like, do you want to talk about your process a little bit? 
Um, I think my process for writing a book is pretty boring because I, I think all writers have a different way they approach it and I tend to be, I try to be the opposite of precious. Um, I feel really blessed that I can do this. I mean, before I did this, the past 10 years before uh, writing full time, I was working with criminals with batterers. Um, so this is like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I don't have to go into sweaty rooms with criminals anymore. I am a lucky lady. Uh, but how I write is very much, boom, I, I get an idea. Ideas just, I'm, I've been lucky with all my novels. An idea sort of comes to me um, as a what if. I have a way that I do a, um, formulate the idea starting with writing myself a what if, and I write a thing. I write a two page on what I'm going to write. Then I sit and I write a whole bunch of idea cards. And then I shuffle them into first act, second act, third act. Um, and I never have the end, because I like to kind of discover the end, but that's just you know the way I am. And then I write it up as an outline, and, I, that's, and then I go to town. For me, and I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. Some people don't believe in outlines. Uh, and this is after the research, by the way. I love research, and I could spend so long in the research. It's like, no, I have to read another magazine from 1901 that I got from eBay before I write anything else. Um, so, but once that is done, then I sit down on chapter one, and I go, and I go through, and I try very hard not to revise as I go along, because I love revision. That's my big treat. Um, and, and then, you know, 17 to 25 revisions later, you know, it's ready to, to give to my agent. I don't give my agent. We have the same agent. And I think we have a very different relationship with how we work with Stephanie. And so I don't give pieces as I go along. I, I need to sit inside that. Um, and I work on a regular basis. Like I get my husband out the door into work, honey. And when he leaves, then I, you know, I forget I'm at work now. And I go. Um, and then, you know, and I, oh, the important thing is I put myself in my calendar. First draft has to be done by this date you know, blah, blah, blah. So I set myself goals on a pretty harsh taskmaster. Um, and, and people always say, how do you know when it's done? It's like, almost like this, like a feeling. It's like a click goes. It's sort of like when I knew my kids should be allowed to cross the street by themselves. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, they can do it now. They're 23 now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about you? I don't think our, I don't think we have the same um, which is, yet we come out with books. We do, somehow. One of the great privileges of, of traveling around and talking with like big pods of writers, which I've been doing for the last nine months, is we get to have some of these in-conversation events, and I love them because they reassure me that no process is identical, and there is no process that is correct for writing a book. Like, what is the, the saying that there are three big secrets to writing a novel, but nobody knows what they are? Um, and I... 
I think our processes are are more alike than my process with other writers who are like, oh, I just sit down and I write and I discover the characters on my <gasps> journey. And I'm like, what even is that? You know, I'm much they more... Tell me what to do. Right. <laughs> I'm much more obsessive and controlling than that. So um, I'm not a person who just writes as far ahead as she sees in the headlights. I also work from an outline. Um, I usually start with um, a idea that is a, um, a short story, actually, because before I started writing books, I wrote short stories, um, and I still love the form. To me, a short story is like a window into a character's life at a point at which they're making some like impactful decision, even if they don't know what the impact will be. And a novel is like watching that person through the window for like three years while they're struggling with some big emotional situation. So I usually will start writing a short story if the characters continue to sort of drag me around by the hair and there seems to be more that they want to say, then I build the scaffolding of an outline around that short story. And the short story usually shows up as chapters in the book. Like you, the reader, won't hopefully recognize that, but there's always like an embedded short story in there somewhere. Um, and when I say an outline, I, I teach this at our the school we teach for, Grub Street, which is an amazing writing community, like the best writing community in the world, like right across the common. I teach an outline course and people practically like vom when I tell them, okay, I'm going to you know, write from an outline because they think I'm talking about the high school outline of Roman numeral, you know, capital a, letter, smaller. Yeah, like the, the topic, the mission sentence. And when I heard Randy talk about her idea cards, I thought, what a great idea. What a great concept. Because what I start with is usually scraps of scenes and scraps of ideas. And I just write them down on a laundry list. Um, I write longhand my outline um, on typing paper with Sharpie pens, tape the sheets of paper together, stick it on my wall. It goes from ceiling to floor. And it usually is covered with question marks in the beginning. There are like, there's a short story like right in the middle, maybe a couple of ideas scribbled here and there, and then a lot of like WTF question mark. You know, what goes here? What goes? Here? No idea. And so I sort of test drive scenes. If they work, I plug them in. If they don't, which is usually the case, it takes me like two to three years to figure out like what all the scenes should be and where they should go. And, you know, then it's just a question of writing the damn thing and polishing it. And I mean, so the ideating and the research and and this sort of architecture of writing the book takes me longer than actually like sitting down and writing a draft, which I can do in three months. Um, but it usually takes me about two and a half years to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite so that it comes out to be, you know, what you see in novel form, which is hopefully, you know, fairly, fairly polished. It'd be funny because we both, I teach how to... <laughs> How to uh, structure a novel with good bones, a one-day mm -hmm. seminar. So it would be very funny to sit in on each other's and see, you know, we can probably combine to a two-day seminar. I think that would be great and yeah. nobody would come. <laughs> they would be like two days on structure? No way. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, whenever I teach a structure seminar, they sell out like that. Because yes, the biggest do. problem that writers face, I think, is structure. I know so many people who can turn a beautiful sentence and when you're reading a book, I know we've all had this experience as a voracious reader. I find this very sad when I'm reading a book that starts out beautifully and then about 50 pages in, you fall off the continental shelf into total boredom. And it's usually not the fault of the story or the writing. It's the structure, like having that sort of underlying, you know, dinosaur skeleton of scenes. Um, and that's like so not sexy. It's, it's hard to teach. But it's, it's hard work, but it's what makes a novel well-paced. So thank you so much. Thank you, everybody.